Tonight we're doing Genesis 46. The rest, there's only a few verses left. And then we're going to go through all of chapter 47. So this is kind of, like I said, this is nearing the end. But we only have two weeks after tonight. And tonight we're going to end uh, with kind of the, the summing up of Jacob's life. He's not going to die yet, but it's kind of the sum up of, of the reunion of the family. And it's going to talk about what happens. Last week, if you remember, it was leaving the land, leaving the land of promise. So they left Canaan. And this week, they're entering Egypt. And there's something important about them entering Egypt. And what you're going to see is that God is fulfilling the promise, the promise of being a blessing. And that's what's going to go on in this chapter. And then after that, we've got one week where we're going to read about Jacob's death, his final blessing on his family. And that week will end with his death. And then we're going to finish uh, the book out the week after that with Joseph and what he does after his father's death. And it ends, the book ends with Joseph himself dying. And that's it. That's the end of the patriarchs. End of the book of Genesis. So we're getting close. If you remember where we were last week, last week we were, um, we had just seen the brothers come and Jacob come. They hadn't really entered yet. They hadn't met, but they were coming on the carts. Remember that Pharaoh had sent all these wagons back and all of this, this, these gifts to the family of Jacob, right? Joseph's family. That's why the Pharaoh sent it. And so they go back to pick up Jacob and Jacob can't believe his eyes. And he's being told his son is alive and he's overjoyed. He he says, my spirit is revived. And so he's going to go down. And that's where we left off. So we open tonight at a pretty emotional high point, which is hard. I haven't had time to settle you in to make you cry yet, but we'll get there. I'm going to try and get us there to the tears at the beginning, because we start there. We're starting with the climax, aren't we? Because for all of these years, Jacob has thought that his son is dead. And they're going to meet at this moment. And we kind of miss the poignancy of it. We miss the importance of this moment because we breeze by it. I'm going to try not to do that. But it's just a few verses. Here's how our story tonight starts. If you have your Bibles, we're in Genesis 46, verse 28. Or you can look up here. Now he sent Judah. This is talking about Jacob. Jacob. Now he, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, the land they were going to enter. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck. This is Joseph. Joseph fell on Jacob's neck and wept on Jacob's neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Now, That seems pretty brief, right? We want the big, uh, I I don't know, a big movie moment. We want the big cathartic thing. Now, to be fair, we've been following this for 10 months. So I feel like I've primed you a little bit for it. But we don't have all that buildup for three verses feels kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? What's interesting is some of the verbiage. And I'm going to try and explain to you so you can understand how important this meeting is. Obviously, you can understand just 
putting yourself in the situation, right? This is a, a father seeing his son, his beloved son, his favored son, who he thought was dead for all these years. So there's, you can understand that from a personal perspective. But even the language of the account is trying to tell us something. It uses this word, uh, this word appeared, that Joseph appeared before him. He prepared his chariot. He went up to Goshen, right? He's riding on a chariot. It's Joseph. Remember who he is. He's now the vizier of Egypt. He's the prime minister in essence. He's the, the highest ranking official. That's not the king himself. And he rides in his chariot to meet his father at the land of Goshen. And it says he appeared before him. Now this word appeared is an interesting word. It's actually, uh, in Hebrew, the word is ra'ah. It just means to see. How it normally is used is to see. This is the passive form of that in Hebrew, to be seen, right? To be seen. And, and so it gets translated appear. Here's what's interesting about that word. In the passive form, to a appear, as it's translated, that shows up throughout the, the Pentateuch, all first five books of the Old Testament. It shows up in Genesis, it shows up in Exodus, it shows up in Leviticus, it shows up in Numbers, it shows up in Deuteronomy. Except for this passage, it only applies to one character ever. Only one person is said to appear ever in the entire Torah, right? The, all five books of Moses, one person is said to appear. Who do you think it is? It's God. God is the one who appears. So this is an odd standout. It's, it's, it's an odd passage because this is the only time in all of the Torah that someone other than God is said to appear. Why is that? Why is that language being used? Well, at one level, I would say this. It's putting an emphasis on it. It's kind of exposing us to the reality of, of the glory that Joseph must have, must have struck in Jacob. What did I just tell you? I told you he's the vizier of Egypt. He comes in immense power on a chariot clothed in the robes of royalty, right? At one level, I think this is a word that's being used to describe the impact it had on Jacob, even just visually. To see this man of power, this, how could this be my son? <laughs> he appeared like God to him. That's what it's saying. So at one level, I think that's the case. The, the glory that Joseph shows is, is something that Jacob is just, taken aback at he's he's in awe of but at another level i think a deeper level on a personal level i think it's also talking about this it's talking about the fulfillment that the presence of god brings in a person right this appearing word it's used in accounts where god appears to abraham right it's used in genesis 18 before he goes to sodom, sodom and gomorrah god appeared to abraham it's used in genesis 12 Right? It's used in all these spots throughout the patriarch's lives, throughout Abraham, throughout Jacob's life. It's been used for Jacob many times that the Lord appeared to him. And I think what, what is missing sometimes on a personal level is that this is a fulfillment for Jacob, isn't it? Think about what it's like to have God appear to you. 
I mean, that's, that's a fulfilling thing. It, it, it touches a place in you that nothing else can. Because it's God. And I think that's the implication here for a personal level. That, J, that Jacob seeing Joseph, that Joseph's appearance to him, that him appearing before him fulfilled that, the deep parts of his soul. That he would see his baby alive. And so he sees him, and he even, he even alludes to that in what he says, doesn't he? He says, now I can die. Why? Why, why now can I die? Because my life has been satisfied. I, I'm complete. Right? This is not the cry of, of someone who's just f- being flippant about death. This is the cry of an old man saying all the things that I needed to do in life, all the things I wanted have come to pass. They've happened because I saw your face. My, my son, because I saw your face, Joseph, seeing that you are alive, I can finally die in peace. That's what Jacob's saying. So they have this tender moment of meeting And it says they weep on each other a long time. They greet each other and they weep. Because none of them expected this. Neither did Joseph, did he? Remember what he said when he named his kids. Manasseh, the Lord has made me forget my toil and forget my father's house. Joseph didn't see this coming. The Lord in his kindness and his graciousness made this moment come to pass. It's a beautiful moment. But Joseph has other things at heart too which is he knows the Pharaoh is going to want to see his family, right? He's made a big deal about his family coming down and the Pharaoh is going to want to meet them. So what goes on after their embrace, after their weeping together, after the great reunion, that's not good. Huh? Um, Aaron, can you run back there and just restart the, the slideshow for me? Thank you. So what happens next is that Joseph is going to talk to his brothers. He's going to talk to his brothers about meeting with Pharaoh because he has something that he specifically wants them to hear, something he wants them to know. And what that is, is that, listen, you've got to convince him that you're not a threat. (laughs) He wants them to to continue to, to emphasize, you are shepherds, right? There's no danger here. He wants to get them in the right place, wants to get them to the land of Goshen. And so in order to get them to the land of Goshen, he says, hey, just keep reminding Pharaoh, your shepherds, because it's loathsome to the Egyptians. Shepherds are loathsome to the Egyptians. They they don't really like to be around them. They don't want to be near them. And what Joseph is trying to do is he's trying to set up a reality in which he can explain to Pharaoh that yes, this is who they've been the whole time. They're not here as invaders or foreigners, but at the same time, cannot get them put somewhere that's far away from him. See, the land of Goshen, one of the reasons Joseph wanted it so much for them to to land there is because it was near to him. It was near his home base. It's near where he operated. And so with that being the case, he says this, 
Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers. You'll say that so that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now Goshen was a fertile land. It was a good land. It was a grazing land, but it was also, it was far. It was not near the capital. It was not, it, basically what, what the, he's trying to convince Pharaoh, this is not some nepotistic endeavor, right? This is not Joseph bringing his family down so they can all, you're a mayor, you're a mayor, you're going to govern that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's not the intention. The intention is merely that their family would be re- reunited and that the things that they've done for all their life as shepherds will continue to be their life. It will com- continue to be what they do, that there is no impulse for, for greater gain for the family, right? I and mean, what greater gain could there be anyway? Joseph is already the vizier. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have, have come out of the land of Canaan and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. So he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for this famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. So they come and they, they want him to know, listen, we're, we're merely immigrants. We're sojourners here. We're not seeking to become Egyptian. We're not trying to usurp anything. We're just here to graze because the famine has been severe where we are from. So what's Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So Pharaoh actually receives them even greater than what Joseph expected. They essentially become royal herdsmen, royal flock keepers, right? This is a high status position, right? They, they're merely just nomadic shepherds. And all of a sudden, they're going to be tending the king's flocks, which were obviously numerous, right? They were massive. So this is a pretty well-established position. And not only that, that means they were taken care of. Right? The Pharaoh would provide for them. He would feed them. He would give them an allotment of land and, and, and some level of you know, food and, and care and, and pay for what they did. So this is, a, uh, this is beyond anything that, that Joseph was even thinking. He was just trying to get them a place to settle. But Pharaoh receives them so openly and gives them a status and a position. But it is interesting, though, because the brothers still approach him very politely, very much uh, deferent to royalty, don't they? They keep calling themselves your servants. They use all this language. And what, what you're seeing is that they're recognizing who he is, that they're recognizing he's a king. 
And they're showing that the level of, of respect and fealty that they feel they need to. Because Pharaoh, status-wise, is above them, right? And so they're showing that respect and deference. But there's one person left who has to meet Pharaoh, isn't there? It's Jacob. Jacob has not met Pharaoh. It's just been the brothers. And it's interesting because the next verses are a very different tone. Whereas there is deference and respect between the brothers and and how they speak to Pharaoh, it is actually Pharaoh who shows deference to Jacob. Which is interesting. It's interesting because we really don't have any concept of that in our society. But see, what they understood was a standard... uh, it was a standard reality for that, for that age, which is that there is a level of respect and, and deference you show to eldership, to age. For those who have lived a long life, have accumulated much wisdom, they deserve much respect. And so you're going to see Pharaoh provide that to Jacob, and it's going to be bookended by two things. Look at what Jacob does at both the beginning and the end. I was going to say, they, show, they showed deference. And, sorry, I just thought about this because I looked at my dad. They showed deference and respect, unlike me, towards my father tonight. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. So Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Okay, short verse. Again, it's just a few verses. This is not a long interaction that we're seeing here, but it's powerful and it's poignant. Here's why. One, Jacob bookends his meeting with Pharaoh by blessing him twice. He blesses him when he sees him and he blesses him when he leaves. What should that make you think of? should make you think of the fact that the Lord told Abraham and his descendants that they would be a source of blessing for the families of the world. Jacob is blessing the king of another nation. Right? He's fulfilling the promise. But I also think this passage is equally important because I love what Jacob says, and I love, I just will never, ever, ever stop loving the honesty, the honesty of scripture. <laughs> because so often we have all these platitudes and all these things that stand in the way of us being honest. And Jacob just does not have that filter. This is a man standing before a king, and a king says, how old are you? He's, he's trying to be respectful. Wow, you're, you're an aged man. How, how many years have you walked this earth? And he's like, my life has been, I've had few years and it's been bad. That's awesome. I love that because he's honest. 
That's an honest assessment of his life. And I just feel like most people are not willing to be that honest. Jacob is right. Think about his life. He's like, my years have been few and bad. Think about his life. As a young man, he, he was a deceiver. I'm not denying that. But as a young man, he deceives his father, takes the blessing from his older brother. His mother says, run away. Right? Run. Go into exile. Why? Because his older brother wants to murder him. Okay? He goes into exile at his mother's behest. Has to sojourn. Has to take a long journey back to see Laban, his uncle. Again, because his brother wants to murder him. He never sees his mother again. She dies while he's away. Never gets to see the mother again who told him to leave. He works hard, toilsome work for his uncle Laban. On his wedding day, he's tricked into marrying a different woman than the woman he thought he was marrying. Then has to work another time after that another seven years, another period of time, right? Seven years for the woman he was originally promised. So he spends 14 years working for Laban. Then he has to make a wage. So he has to work another, I think it's another six years to get sheep and have some kind of wage. So he works for 20 years for this man. And then what happens? The Lord tells him, go back. So he goes back. What happens when he gets into the land? The first thing that happens, his daughter gets raped. And then what happens? His sons murder an entire town. Okay, so he's got murderous sons. His daughter's been raped. Then what happens? His son, this is what he thinks, his son gets murdered by an animal out in the wilderness, his, his beloved son. The beloved son, that is the son of the wife who died in childbirth, bearing Benjamin. I mean, this is not an easy life. Think about all those things. Think about the trauma of one of those things I mentioned to you happening in your life. Imagine all of those things. In one life, Jacob is not overstating his case to say my years have been few and bad. He's being honest. But what I love about this is it's exactly what we talked about when we talked about, remember the week we talked about the righteous sufferer, what righteous suffering looks like? I told you, one of the things the righteous sufferer does, they're honest. They're honest about their suffering. But what's the other thing? It doesn't let them stop from being a blessing to other people. Jacob is honest about his suffering, but what's he do? He blesses Pharaoh twice. He blesses him when he sees him, and he blesses him when he leaves. Jacob's suffering has not stopped him from being the channel of God's blessing to the world. Despite all the pain, all the suffering he's walked through, he is still fulfilling the promise of God by blessing the nations. Jacob's still about doing God's work. That's powerful. It's powerful to see the combination of honesty and his willingness to do what God's asked of him.
He's fulfilling the promise. He's being honest with this man. And he says, of course, man, and I'm not even as old as my parents, right? My, my, my father, he lived longer than I've lived. My great, my grandfather, he lived even longer than that, right? Jacob, in his estimation, it's just been just a hard, rough life. And he's right. But he's 130 when he dies, I think. Maybe he's 130 here, he says, right? Is that what he says here, 130? Yes, 130. So he's 130 already. 130 years old. And it just reminds you that no matter how long you live, the human existence is but a mist, right? That's what it says in the scriptures. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. Life just goes by like that. Even at 130, he can say, my years have been few and bad. Okay. So he blesses him. He's fulfilling the promise. And then he leaves. So what does Joseph do? He settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. So now it's going to talk about Joseph. We just saw Jacob, that he's fulfilling the promise. Is Joseph fulfilling the promise? Well, we're going to find out that too. One, he's taking care of his family. He's He's going to do good to them. We just see that right here. He's, he's doing good to his family. But is he doing good to everyone else? Now, it's not necessarily fun to talk about this next part, but I, I feel it's necessary to understand it aright. We're going to understand this correctly. Because what is about to happen, especially from uh, the perspective of this culture now, nowadays, is ripe for deconstruction. To look at it and be like, this is awful. Because what Jacob, excuse me, what Joseph is about to do is enslave everyone in Egypt, right? That's what's about to happen. They're going to become slaves to Pharaoh. Now, that's very easy to cherry pick and be like, look at this. Look, the God was for this. This does not look right. But we have to stop and think about some of our assumptions. And one of those assumptions we just have to recognize, especially as Americans, our views of slavery are colored by the African slave trade. And not only that, they're usually colored, even though this isn't directly tied to slavery, we usually tend to think of slavery in terms of things like the Holocaust, where you have concentration camps and people put in and and they're working them to death. Or we think of it, like I said, the African slave trade, where they're being pressed into service, literally kidnapped to be slaves. Now, those things, or even even modern slavery, uh, like sex trafficking, right? All of those things are heinous and awful and terrible. And they tend to color our view of what slavery is. But all slavery is not the same. Because what you're going to see here is the Egyptians volunteer to become slaves. They're choosing slavery. And what you have to understand is that very much unlike the African slave trade, slavery in the ancient world was in many ways just a fact of life. It was a normal part of their existence. It was like being in debt, right? This is not 
the same existence that we think of when we think of slavery. And of course, the Jewish uh, experience of slavery that's going to come up in the Exodus is much more like the African slave trade. They're pressed into service. They're, they're, they're forced to be s- slaves. But what we're seeing here with the Egyptians becoming slaves to Pharaoh is very different because they're going to elect to do it. And what we have to understand is that the account makes it clear they're thankful for it. Because the slavery that's being talked about here is much more like a job, actually, which is odd to say. But one of the things that is very true in American society and really first world societies, but not true for most people on the planet, is that we don't these people did not have a social safety net. They did not have some way that someone was going to provide for them and take care of them if they, you know, lost work or their crops died or if, you know, they had to sell their land. They were just destitute. It was not expected that someone was going to come along and clean up their situation and just help them up on their feet. No, what you did is you died. That's the option. Or, you know, you... You became a prostitute or anything you could do to stay alive because the other option is death. And you're going to see that these Egyptians literally thank Joseph for making them slaves because he saved their lives. Because again, that's the other option. They had the option of becoming slaves or death. And the truth is that slavery in this instance that we're going to talk about here like I said, is much more like, like having a, a, a job. You have a, a, a tenured work, right? So there's real benefits. Yeah, you're not free. You don't really own anything. You don't have any property that's yours. But you're taken care of. You get food. You have an allotment of things. And you're safe. You're relatively safe. Because the person who's up above you, Pharaoh in this case, he's going to take care of you. Now, there's something really powerful about being a free man, but being a free man's kind of like being self-employed today, isn't it? Because you take all the risk on yourself. And if it blows up in your face, no one's there to help you. You're just done, right? That's the kind of, of slavery, slavery we're talking about in this passage. So you have to look at it with a different lens than what we normally think of when we hear the word slavery. You'll see in the account that their response is totally different than what we'd expect when we think of that. Okay, so here's what happens. Now, there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. They came to him and said, give us food. For why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. So Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for their livestock that year. So again, the famine, remember, 
Joseph had already had the dream. It's seven years of famine. It's bad. They've already spent all that they had financially, and now they're selling their livestock to him. They're just everything they can do to survive because again, at the most base level, the human desire is is to live. No matter what it takes to live. So they come to Joseph looking for an answer and Joseph is being gracious in providing one. He could have said, no, you don't get any food and they just starve, but he's doing God's work. So he provides for them. Okay. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. What are they saying? Functionally, they're becoming serfs. Right? This looks like feudalism. It looks like the Middle Ages in Europe. <clears throat> the Egyptians will still be on the land. They'll still be working the land. That's why they say give us seed so that we can plant crops and take care of the land. But it will be owned by Pharaoh. He will be the landowner. Now remember, if this is the case, there's not going to be any land in all of Egypt that is not owned by Pharaoh. He will be the only landowner. <laughs> which is what makes it very much like a kingship, right? Even more so than it already was. He owns everything. It's all his. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them. (coughs) Excuse me. He removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So the priestly class kind of became an like, aristocratic class, right? Because they're the only people who own land. So they maintained a very high status in Egyptian society. And then, of course, Pharaoh was king. But everyone else owned nothing. But Joseph was still going to take care of them. And so he did, right? Joseph said to the people, behold, I have today bought you in your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you may sow the land. At the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones. Again, listen to the graciousness of that. He could have said, you have nothing. You won't have anything. No, he's going to provide for them. He's going to take care of them and their families. What's their response? It's not like, you've taken advantage of us, Joseph. How dare you? They say, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, whenever the author was writing at that point, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the lands of the priests did not become 
Pharaoh's. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Now listen to this. This sounds very different than the Egyptian situation, doesn't it? They acquired land, became numerous. It's setting up the expectation for what's going to happen in the Exodus. Why did the Egyptians press the Hebrews into slavery? The slavery that's very different than what we just saw with Egypt. The kind that is hard work and toil and that you're forced into it and kidnapped and you're oppressed. Why is that uh, Why is that going to happen? Well, one, they are very prosperous. There could be a jealousy factor. But two, they're becoming very numerous. They're fruitful and multiplying. And one of the things that Exodus says explicitly is that they oppressed them because they were worried they would rise up and take over the land. They thought there was too many of them. We, we better stop them from multiplying because if we don't, then their numbers will be too great for us. They will be able to conquer us. And that's why they're pressed into slavery. Okay. So they were fruitful, very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. What's beautiful about that, you may not remember, is that when Joseph was taken away and he was sold into slavery, he was 17 years old. See, Jacob got 17 years with his boy before he thought he died. And when he was returned to life, when he was brought back to life in his eyes, he got 17 more years with him. 17 years in the land of Egypt, 17 years in the land of Canaan. There's a a beautiful symmetry about that, isn't there? A symmetry to Jacob's life. So, 17 years he lived there. And when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Okay. So again, this is kind of giving us that summary piece of Jacob's life. He's not dead yet. We're going to hear from him again in the next chapter, but it's giving us a preview. And we've seen kind of several of these deathbed scenes, haven't we? We saw it in Genesis 24. With, with Abraham. We saw it with Isaac. I mean, we've seen these kind of scenes. So this is kind of another one setting us up. We're going to see Jacob die very soon. But at this point, it's just giving us the summary of his life. He lived 147 years. He bowed in head, his head in worship at, at the head of his bed. It's reminding, he's, he's infirm. He's nearing the end. But, but what's important to him? As his life is drawing to an end, what's he thinking about? The promises. He knows. He's, he knows it was okay for him to go down, right? God told him it was okay to go down. But he knows it's not where he's meant to end up. 
because they're still somewhere else he was meant to be. And so he makes Joseph swear to him, when I die, take me back to the land of Canaan. Bury me in the cave at Machpelah, right? In my, my grandfather's cave, the one that he bought, where he's buried, where Sarah is buried, where Isaac is buried, where Rebecca is buried, and where, where, where we will hear next week, I believe, Jacob say, there I buried Leah. And then he himself would be buried there, right? This, this is his family's land, the one possession they have in the land of promise. Jacob says, you've got to take me back. Okay, that's where our passage ends tonight. But as I think about it, I think about <clears throat> this passage we just read. I, I'm struck by the blessing piece. See, because they never escape the fact that the promises are hanging over their lives. The patriarchs never escaped that. It was central to everything they did, to everything they understood about who they were. Jacob, when he goes to meet with Pharaoh, he blesses him. Why? Because he knows he's meant to be a blessing to the world. Joseph, he's blessing the land, as paradoxical as it may seem to us, he's blessing the land by providing for them, by taking care of them, by not letting them die. by returning them to the land that is, yes, it's now owned by Pharaoh, but letting them still live in the land of their ancestors and take care of it and plant crops and have a yield of that crop that goes to taking care of their own family and their own household. Joseph is blessing Egypt. And when they're thinking about the land, Jacob wants to go back. He said, once I'm dead, take me back to the land. They're thinking about their children. Jacob's thinking about Joseph. Joseph, in the next account, we're going to see Joseph is thinking about his children, Manasseh and Ephraim, because we're going to have this odd blessing scene where Jacob blesses the two boys, takes them as tribes of his own, and he crosses his arms over to bless the younger with the greater blessing, right? From your view, it would be here. Right? There's that interesting story about the blessing where Jacob blesses the younger, right? They're thinking about these promises that hang over their lives because that is central to who they are. And I think the Joseph story uniquely, in a unique way compared to all the other stories that are in Genesis, is about that blessing aspect of the promise. Joseph himself says it, doesn't he? He says, no, 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 why did this happen? Why did my life get completely upended? It wasn't because of the evil you desired to do to me. It was because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life, to save life. And so what Joseph does in Egypt is take care of it. He, he's a blessing to the world. And I wonder if sometimes we as Christians forget that those same promises hang over us. That we're called to the same things. A land, a seed, a blessing. 
Those are human promises. To one extent, we can say they apply to everyone. A land, a seed, a blessing. But they also uniquely applied to the patriarchs. They uniquely applied to the people of Israel. And in the greatest sense, they uniquely apply to those who are in Christ. Because it was Christ who fully fulfilled those promises. The promise of a land, the promise of a seed. He was the seed, the promise of a blessing. So in Christ, we actually have more responsibility than even the patriarchs did to the promises. And when I read this passage this week and thought about blessing, because it made me think of blessing, I was reminded that we're called to be a blessing to this world. And I'll be honest, I just, there's just been things, just things I've, I've seen and heard about lately, and I, I probably, I'll, I shouldn't read the news so much. <laughs> but uh, just things that are, I told Monique, I was, actually I was crying about it earlier this week, I said, you know, I I feel like I hate the world more than I ever have in my life. I hate what this world has become more than I ever did. And I I think the reason I was crying is because I was so grieved by that. Because that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. That's not where I want to stay. But if I'm honest with you about the state of my heart, that's where I was. That's where I maybe am. But when I thought about this this week, I, I thought about the fact that we're, we're called to be a blessing. Sometimes even to places we hate. <laughs> and my feelings towards the world right now, which are, I'm not saying they're godly, obviously, but, but it's the reality of where I'm at. My feelings towards this place do not have a bearing on what I'm called to do to it, who I'm called to be to it. You know, I think about this story, and I think about Jacob going and blessing the Pharaoh. Think about this. He's blessing the office, not the man, because the man's going to be long gone and dead, but he's blessing the office that will literally enslave his children. The people called by his name. If you remember the prophet Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is in Babylon, right? Because what has Babylon just done in Jeremiah? Wiped out Israel. Holy, all of it. Israel, the northern kingdom, it's already gone. Assyria took care of it. All that's left is the southern kingdom, Judah. And even then, Assyria came to the doors, the gates of Jerusalem. They had to rebuild after that. So, but Jerusalem always stood. <laughs> the, the wonderful city, the holy city of Jerusalem still stood. And what happened in Jeremiah's day? It's all coming down. 
Jerusalem herself has abandoned its God. It's abandoned the God of the promises. And the God of the promises said, judgment's coming. And it's all going down. And so Babylon comes in and it wipes out everything. Destroys the city of Jerusalem. Tears the temple down completely. The place where God's spirit, at least at that time, they said resided. In which for a time it did. You, you re, re realize in Ezekiel 8, at least in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 8, the spirit left. He said the abominations they, that they do in that temple, I, my spirit won't reside here. I refuse to be in this place. But, in Jeremiah, this temple that, that was the place of God's holy dwelling, they tear it down so that nothing is left standing. Babylon destroys it completely. And they put the king in shackles and they take him to Babylon along with countless others. They enslave them. They take them to Babylon. And all of a sudden, you've got this whole population of, of Israelites, of Jews, that are living in the land of their oppression. They're living in Babylon, exile. The place that God told them they would go if they stopped obeying him. And God, sure enough, I'm going to make it happen. So they're in exile and they're in Babylon. And what are they supposed to feel toward Babylon? This, this nation that literally just crushed everything they stood for as a people, destroyed their temple, destroyed their cities, took them into slavery, took them out of the land of promise. They had to leave the land and go to a foreign land in exile. What were they supposed to feel? How could you feel anything other than hate? In the book of Jeremiah, what does God say to Jeremiah? Seek the welfare of the city. Plant in it. Grow in it. Seek good for it. Because the city's welfare is your welfare. How it goes for them, it will go for you. Can you imagine receiving that? For a nation. Think about Jonah. <laughs> Jonah has to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to. Why does he not want to go? Well, because it's the Assyrians, the people that will wipe out completely the land of Israel, the northern kingdom. One of the most ruthless war regimes there's ever been. You know, like, you know how they used to impale people on spikes? Assyria started that. They made up that that way to kill people. It was, it was new in their day. It's a ho- just a horrible land that, that was going to destroy them. Why would Jonah want to go preach to them? Why would jo- the thing that everyone forgets in the story of Jonah is that Jonah's position is totally logical. Everyone just is like, Jonah, like, what, a, what a heathen. He doesn't even listen to God's call. Of, of course not. Of course he doesn't want to listen to God's call is to go to a people that are going to cause his people's destruction and tell them, hey, there's mercy for you. It's totally logical. Of course, God makes him go. And he preaches repentance and they all repent. And Joseph, or excuse me, and Jonah's what? He's still angry about it, right? That's the conclusion. 
I mean, all these stories. This is, this is not unique to us. This is not unique to me. I, I, I shouldn't speak for anyone. This is not unique to me. To feel like the place where you live or the place you're at is, you know, is doing evil or whatever you want to say. And for me, obviously, that's grander because I'm thinking the world, not necessarily this exact place. But, but uh, the saints of old, they experienced that. And without fail, God called them to be a blessing to those places. Jeremiah was called to be a blessing to, to Babylon, and he was to prophesy to the people, seek the welfare of the city. Jonah was called to be a blessing to Nineveh, the people who would destroy his land. And they repented. We have the same calling. I have the same calling. Because we're called to be a blessing to the world. Because in Christ, in Christ, that's the responsibility of us all. Because that's who Jesus was. Everything Jesus did was about being a blessing to this place, to this world. I mean, even even the act of becoming the eternal son, becoming the man, Jesus Christ, even that was him showing the value of this place, isn't it? that it was worth redeeming. Not because of anything in it, but because he loved it that much. Jesus loved it that much. The Father loved it that much. The Spirit was here doing his work, had not abandoned it to its own devices. And if our Lord loves this place that much, if he's willing to offer that much, all of himself for it, we're called to the same I'm called to the same. So I guess my encouragement for you tonight, like I said, being a pastor functionally is you guys just hearing my own internal processing and I force it on you. <laughs> but but that's my lesson for tonight because it's a lesson for me. The calling we have is to go out and be a blessing. So what I'll ask of you tonight, what I'll ask you to pray about and think about and what I'm going to tell myself is how can I go out and be a blessing to the world? Because that's what we're called to do. Regardless of how we feel about it, regardless of what state we're in, regardless of whether our years have been few and bad, we're called to go out and be a blessing. So that in Christ, the promises of Abraham might truly come to pass. That all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And that blessing primarily came through Christ. We call ourselves by his name. We've got to be about sharing the blessing. We've got to be about spreading the blessing. 